This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. So much psalm, so little time, but we're going to get into it. Now, this is the final sermon in the Summer in the Psalms series that we've been going through. And I just want to say how encouraged I've been to hear response and feedback. I've, I've got people that have told me they're praying the Psalms with their kids at their meals and, and multiple people who are memorizing Psalm 51 and uh, also people that are not skipping Saturday in CBR, which is awesome. And so we've had some, uh, some effects of the Psalms on us and, and it's more than I could have ever asked. And so I'm grateful for that. Now, if you've not been here, uh, we've been looking at how the Psalms usher us into a deep spirituality. Now, the way that they do that is they bring us to the depths of human experience. 
like Psalm 13 we saw last week and Psalm 51 the week before. But not only that, they bring us to the heights of spiritual joy. And so as we look at the Psalms, we're, we see that they're filled with mountain peaks of spirituality. For instance, our call to worship, Psalm 27, says this, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Psalm 63 puts it like this, but your steadfast love is better than life, therefore my lips will praise you. Psalm 84 says, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And we get to today's text, Psalm 73, and at the end he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, though my flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And C.S. Lewis says it well in his reflections in the Psalms. He says, the most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express that same delight in God which made David dance. But many of us are not there, right? I mean, many of us are still scaling the sides of spirituality, let alone reaching the summit. And so how do we get there? How do we get there? Well, Old Testament scholar Walter Bergman helps us. He, he says that the Psalms actually have three movements to them, and they're uh, in accord with the pattern of the human life. And those three movements are orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Now, if you've ever been lost, you, you kind of know what these words mean. Um, when I was younger, my sister and our babysitter and I, we, we set out for a little excursion into the woods behind the house. And as we were going, we were oriented, right? We knew the woods were before us, the house was behind us, we were good. And after about 30 minutes, we realized we had no idea where we were and that we were disoriented. We didn't know which way was which. We had no idea what to do. And you know the saying, um, not all who wander are lost. Um, that wasn't true of us. We were lost. And, and so we had no idea how to get out uh, until hours later, we saw what looked like a building in the distance. And immediately we were reoriented. Immediately we knew the direction we needed to go. And so you, if you've experienced being lost, you know what these words mean. And, and so he says that there's psalms of orientation. Psalms of orientation, which would be psalms that, that des describe and declare how all is well with the world. Things are as they should be. You think of Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This is a psalm of orientation, at least the beginning part is. But the problem is, although they are right and true, they can seem naive in the face of life's difficulties, which is why we have psalms of disorientation. Psalms of disorientation are when the cries, our cries come out of the depths because what was once up is now down and what was, now, uh, was once down is now up. And the whole world seems to be crumbling around us and we have no idea where to go. And so we have psalms of lament, like Psalm 13. We have psalms of confession, like Psalm 51. And, and the point of these is to give utterance to our hearts when we're in the depths. And finally, we have psalms of reorientation. 
Psalms of reorientation are when we've been through the valley of the shadow of death, and now that we're on the other side, we can't help but thank and praise the God who got us through. And, and Psalms of reorientation are not a return to the way things were at the beginning. In fact, they're a, a whole new appreciation having been through disorientation and arrived out on the other side. Psalm 73 is a psalm of reorientation. The author, the psalmist Asaph, he moved through doubts and despondency to depending and declaring that God is good. And, and then, uh, after he did that, he turned around to tell people how it worked. And so, because of that, this psalm is for those of us who are not all right. For those of us who uh, feel uncomfortable answering the question, how are you, because we know that we're just going to lie. For those of us who are in a place where our faith is not working, and so we're discouraged and disillusioned as a result. The beauty of Psalm 73 is that it's for struggling saints and sinners. Psalm 73 is Asaph showing us that in prayer, it's okay to not be okay, but this is how you don't have to stay there. And so with that, we're going to look at how Asaph brings us from orientation through disorientation to reorientation. And that's going to be our three points. So orientation. If you have a Bible or your worship folder, go ahead and get the text out in front of you because we're going to be looking at it together. Verse 1 says this, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now this is the main point of the psalm, that God is good, truly God is good. But that might seem simplistic, it might seem naive, it might seem shallow, right? We have that saying from usually in youth groups where one person says God is good and then somebody says all the time, right? And then I say all the time. Exactly, and that is incredibly painful. It's like salt in a wound if you doubt the goodness of God. It's shallow, it's simplistic, and yet it's true. And, and so what we need is, I think, was helpfully described by Oliver Wendell Holmes. He says this, for the simplicity that lies this side of complexity, I would not give a fig, but for the simplicity that lies on the other side of complexity, I would give my life. This is what he means. God is good on the near side of complexity, on the near side of the difficulties of life, is simplistic, right? I mean, it's naive, it's untested, it's almost like it doesn't see the realities of the world. But God is good on the far side of complexity, on the far side of having worked through how hard life can be, is profound and deep simplicity. And so one of the things that Asaph does for us is, is he moves from simplistic through the complexity of life, trusting God in a fallen world to come out on the other side and simplic with simplicity tell us truly God is good. And so as we look at Psalm 73, we realize that Asaph has actually been to the brink and back and he's saying the same thing. Truly God is good to Israel. But he doesn't just say that. He, he says truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, one of the things that's important here is um, Oswald Chambers says this. He says, the root of all sin 
is the suspicion that God is not good. The root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. And so because Asaph knows this firsthand, uh, he wants to reinforce the goodness of God for us. And, and we see that the, the goodness of God is for those who are pure in heart. But what does it mean to be pure in heart? Um, Soren Kierkegaard, a philosopher, wrote a book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. And it means that uh, to have your desires directed towards one object, namely God himself, is purity of heart. It is uh, where you have no duplicity, no ulterior motives, nothing that uh, you really have as the means to the end, but it's God is the end in and of himself. You ultimately have your desires aimed towards him. That's purity of heart. In our call to worship, uh, it says this, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. That's purity of heart. It's when our desires are aligned, marching to the beat of the same drum in the direction of God. Rather than when our desires are in discord and in disarray, dispersing in different directions. And it might be helpful uh, to note that the greatest commandment is purity of heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, Jesus says. And if it's easier, we'll look at what impurity of heart looks like. Impurity of heart is a man who loves his wife and his mistress. Impurity of heart is a woman who gives generously to put people in her debt. Impurity of heart is befriending someone because they have a sweet cabin in the mountains. Impurity of heart, when there's these ulterior motives that are happening, when it looks like I desire this, but really I'm looking for that beyond. And as we pay close attention to this psalm, we realize that was Asaph's problem. His heart was divided. He claimed a pure heart because he thought it pro uh, promised prosperity, but really it was just pain that he had. And so look with me at verses two and three. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When he saw the prosperity of the wicked, his heart moved from orientation that God is, is good to disorientation in doubtful unbelief. And so he moved from orientation to disorientation. Now, what is it that we see that he saw when he looked at the prosperity of the wicked? Well, verses 4 through 12 show us what it was that made him stop, stare, and stumble. And that is this. The wicked are painless and comfortable, and yet that makes them proud and oppressive. They're arrogant and sneering. They actually use their power and their influence to persuade people on earth to blaspheme God in heaven. And yet, despite this, they're living it up. They have the good life. And Asaph sees this and he has no idea what to do with it. And he summarizes it in verse 12 when he says, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And so as a result of staring and comparing himself with the wicked, Asaph reaches the base of his bitterness. And we see in verse 13, he says this, All in vain have I kept my heart clean. And washed my hands in innocence. 
Eugene Peterson puts it like this. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? He basically looks at the wicked, looks at his own life, and he says, while their pockets thicken, I'm being stricken, and this is not fair. And it's the the peak or the, the depths, I should say, of his disorientation. Now, while he's at these kind of depths of disgust at how God is ruling the world, I I really want to notice that um, his heart isn't pure, even though he says it is, right? Because it's clear from this that, that what he really wants from God is the leisure of the wicked. Otherwise, he wouldn't be so frustrated with God. And so what he wants is their prosperity, not his poverty, what he wants is for, um, to pursue God so that he could kind of get the hookups from God. And since that strategy's not working, he's about to ditch God and, and go for something else. And when he's here, he, he really reveals to us that God is a means to an end, a comfortable lifestyle, not an end in and of himself. And so he's displaying to us what it looked like that his steps almost stumbled, that his feet almost slipped. And that is that his heart really wasn't pure, even though he washed his hands in innocence, which I think is revealing to us. Because Asaph shows that our religion can be just as ugly as others' irreligion. Asaph shows us that we can wash our hands in innocent, innocence and yet hide a heart that really is longing for what the wicked have. And as we look at this, we can't help but ask ourselves if we're disappointed and disillusioned because following Jesus hasn't really paid off, hasn't really amounted to what we thought it would be. We find ourselves uh, wondering if it's worth having purity of heart when those whose hearts are overflowing with follies seem to be living the good life. And in this disorientation, we realize that if it's the, the good stuff that the wicked have that we really want, what good is Jesus? Because in the end, Jesus makes a horrible Santa Claus. And so St. Augustine puts it like this, true love is the enjoyment of God for his own sake. You could add on there, not for the sake of the goods that the wicked have. To love God is to enjoy him, to want him, to desire him, not for the sake of what we can get from him, but for himself. Purity of heart is to want the good God more than God's goods. And so Asaph helps us because as he desired God for his hookups more than God himself, uh, he helps illustrate for us what this looks like, where, where he is disoriented and how we can get out because he got out. What do we do? Look at verse 16 with me. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He knew it was going to be hard to work through his envy, his bitterness, his disappointment, his resentment, but he pressed in. And so if you're there, hear me, don't give up. Press in, cry out, ask for help, but don't give up. He was at the pits of disorientation, and he pressed in, and this is how he did it. Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Going into the sanctuary of God was the catalyst of Asaph's movement from disorientation into reorientation. So this is where he he moves, is, is by going into the sanctuary of God, he physically goes in, and yet his heart is moving from being disoriented to being reoriented. 
And because his eyes were locked on the prosperity of the wicked, he couldn't help but see the world void of God. It looked like the world uh, was where the wicked won and God was irrelevant. But then he went into the sanctuary and he was given new eyes to see. It's kind of like if you were to put off going to the eye doctor uh, to get a prescription for a really long time, and then you finally go and you get new lenses and you can see clearly again and trees have leaves and it's kind of amazing that, that you actually see the way you, sight was intended to work. This is kind of what happened when he went into the sanctuary of God. He saw things clearly in the proper perspective. Now what does it mean that he went into the sanctuary of God? And I, this was probably the biggest question I was asking when I was reading this text. And there's really two possibilities, but they both have the same outcome. The first possibility is that he went into the physical temple. And when he was in the temple, he joined with the people of God in public worship. And he would see others around him striving to seek the face of God with a pure heart. And he would hear the Psalms sung. And the Psalms would recount the great acts of God for Israel's history. How God is, is present and working and active in the life of these people. That's option one. The other one is, is that he was meditating on the word of God. And as he meditated on the word of God, it brought him into the sanctuary of God. The, the holy of holies that the sanctuary on earth was meant to resemble. And as he was there, he saw, he was able to taste and see that the Lord is good. But the same outcome, regardless of what the sanctuary of God is, is he encountered the God who is there and is not silent and is not passive. He saw, he encountered, he felt, he met with the presence of God. That was what went from disorientation to reorientation as he was reminded that there's a God who is living and active, not deaf, blind, dumb, and incapacitated. And so one of the things that, we, that happens when we all gather here to worship uh, with one another who the New Testament says we actually are the sanctuary of God. And, and as we gather here to worship, we are reminded and reoriented to the God who is living and active in our midst. And it's so necessary because we come from a world that's hell-bent on teaching us that God is irrelevant, if non-existent. I have a professor who talked about how when you see a parade uh, from the street level, you can look as far left or as far right as you want, but there's only so much that you can see. But if you could get into a helicopter and see the parade from the sky, you'd see the entire thing. You'd get the whole picture, right? This is kind of what it was like when he went into the sanctuary of God. He, he got a new context on life. Nothing actually changed for Asaph. There's no evidence that God even showed up and did anything. What changed was his perspective. What changed was he saw things from the skies, not from the streets. Because on the streets, it looks like the wicked prosper and God is irrelevant. But from the skies, it looked like the wicked perish and God is present. And so it says that he discerned their end, which I, I take to be, he saw the whole picture and he saw how God is working in history to bring all things towards his appointed goal. And in light of that, he had a shifted perspective in three ways. A shifted perspective in, in three ways. The first one, it reoriented his perspective on the wicked. 
Now, if you look with me at verses 18 and 20, you'll see this. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. What Asaph sees is that those who give themselves to temporary things, who invest themselves in the here and now, will become just as temporary as those things and will not outlast the here and now. That's why he says, in a moment. Here today, gone tomorrow. What else he sees is, is it's almost like if you were to, to be about to board the Titanic, and, and as you're about to step on board, you, you get this vision, this glimpse of what, what's actually going to happen if you were to fast forward into the future. And, and as you discern their end, uh, you step off and you think, there's no way I would go on that. He moves from envy of the wicked to pity for the wicked because he discerns their end. Now, one way to look at the judgment of God for the wicked is this that God is giving them what they most want. That God's judgment is him giving people what they most want. If you look with me at verse 27, it says this. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. What the wicked most want is distance from God. Arrogance could be defined as rather than running to God, running away from God. They live lives where God is, like I said, irrelevant, and most of them want just to be far from him as possible. And so God gives them what they most want, but they don't realize that alienation from God is being cut off from the source of all life and love, all goodness and joy. And this moves Asaph to pity because he realizes that being cut off from the goodness of God is why hell is hell. But Asaph got not only a new perspective on the wicked, but a new perspective on himself. Going into the sanctuary of God reoriented his perspective on himself. Look at verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. The psalmist is confessing that his desire for God's goods over the good God is subhuman. John Calvin says this, to be human is to be that part of the cosmos which responds to the goodness of God with gratitude. In other words, we are the only creatures in all of God's creation that are able to both sense and experience God's goodness, like the sunshine on your face or some really fat, juicy cheeseburger, and as you experience that, as you sense that, you have the intelligibility, you have the intellect to actually articulate praise to God, thanks to God, gratitude to God. You could say that your human calling, your human vocation is summarized right there. To experience the goodness of God and to respond with gratitude. And so when we fail to do that, we are dehumanizing ourselves. We are more like beasts than humans. That's what the psalmist is saying. When we are embittered toward God because he's holding out on us, when we fail to be attentive to and appreciative of his good gifts towards us, we dehumanize ourselves and we devalue God. But 
the third reorientation of Asaph's perspective was this. He had a reoriented perspective of God. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Despite his bitterness and brutishness, despite his ignorance and ungratefulness, nevertheless. I I think that this is the most beautiful word in the entire psalm. In fact, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached more than 10 sermons on Psalm 73, took one entire sermon and preached it on just this one word, nevertheless. Because it is this this point of shift for the psalmist, where he goes from, from being disoriented and even disgusted and embittered towards God to wanting him and realizing the goodness of God despite his arrogance. And so despite choosing God's gifts over God himself, nevertheless, despite envying the arrogant, nevertheless, despite the fact that he wanted to be like the wicked, nevertheless, despite when we are discontent with God himself, nevertheless, despite our ingratitude, nevertheless. And I think that God's nevertheless comes into full focus in the person of Jesus. Because although Jesus' heart was perfectly pure, nevertheless, he was made to fall to ruin. Although Jesus was sufficiently satisfied with God, nevertheless, he was stricken and afflicted. Because Jesus was near to God, nevertheless, he perished. Although Jesus was always faithful, nevertheless, he was forsaken. So that we could say, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Jesus is the continual presence of God. He is our Emmanuel. Jesus is the sanctuary of God, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the one who said to us, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus, and because of his work, because of who he is and what he did, we can say, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Commentator Derek Kidner put it this way, because of Jesus, we are grasped, guided, and glorified. And now we find ourselves at the pinnacle, at the summit of spirituality. In verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Asaph knows that no matter whether he's on earth or in heaven, the one who has inestimable worth, the one who is worthy of all of his desires and affections is God himself. And as he's moved from orientation through disorientation, Asaph's reorientation actually compels us to press through this process on our own. That we would move from wherever we are to a place where we can take verses 25 and 26 on our own lips. He goes on in verse 26 to say, my flesh and my heart may fail. Now, actually, the Hebrew doesn't have the word may there, and it it kind of frustrates me that the English does. Although my heart and my flesh fail, it's inevitable. You will die. You will be disappointed. But he goes on, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
And so to be reoriented to God as our highest good is the only way that we are able to have strength for our hearts. As Damien and I discussed this, he told me a story about a friend of a friend who um, out of nowhere just started having heart palpitations. And it got so bad that he almost passed out and so they called 911, not knowing what was happening. And the ambulance gets there and he gets loaded up on the stretcher. And as they push him in and they start driving towards the hospital, uh, the EMT looks and notices that he's muttering something. Thinking that he's asking for something, the EMT leans down and, and as he leans down, he listens to him, and he hears him saying, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And of course, the EMT was right. He was asking for something. He was asking that God would sustain him in that moment, and he chose to use the words of Psalm 73 to do that. And the EMT actually leaned forward and said, I'm a Christian too. And as they took him to the hospital, uh, he, he fully recovered. But in the moment of, of greatest need, he used the words of Psalm 73 to cry out to the God who is there. Now, as we wrap up, I want to conclude the way that Asaph concludes this psalm. So look with me at verses 27 and 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So Asaph ended where he began. But this time he's moved from the, the simplistic God is good to Israel to moving through life's complexities, coming out on the other side with this profound simplicity that God is still good. And in fact, it's the nearness of God, not God's goods, that are what he really longs for. And so as we, as we see that Asaph realizes the good life is actually not found in wealth and in power, but in the nearness of the good God, we see that he knows that to have God and nothing else far surpasses, far exceeds having everything else and not God. And just as being without God is why hell is hell, being in the presence of the good God is why heaven is heaven, why glory is glorious. Now, when I was in college, my sister gently and persistently led me to Jesus. And in the night when I had trusted in him, um, I went to uh, a friend of mine named Steve who was there as well, and, and he's a Christian. And I said, Steve, I, I think I just started following Jesus. What do I do? And Steve looked at me and in profound insight, he said, well, there's a verse in James, James 4, 8 says this, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. And so from that point on, that became my whole life philosophy. It was the guiding principle that I tried to orient all of my life around. And from that point on, my, I sought to bring all of life nearer to God to the best I could expecting, trusting that he would be drawing near to me all the time. And so eight, eight and a half years later, um, I'm still a work in progress, but I can say with Asaph, for me, it is good to be near God. And so listen to the wisdom of Asaph and Steve. Take the words of James 4, 8, take the words of Psalm 73 and draw near to God and God will draw near to you.
with that, let's pray. God, it is good to be near you. You are our highest good. Pour your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we might say your steadfast love is better than life. Lord Jesus, we know that you are able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through you. And so we ask that you would draw, draw us to yourself and be faithful to your promise that you will draw near to us. We ask these things, Lord.